We turn again this morning to Galatians chapter 4, picking up with verse 21. Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now let's begin with verse 21. Tell me... You who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Paul is saying here, all right, you want law, I'll give you law, but think about it and beware of this. Do you really know what you're getting yourselves into if you take the law, if that's your choice? Now, the Pentateuch was called the law, as in the law and the prophets, and yet Genesis is really not law, but stories. And so Paul turns to one of the Genesis stories to teach the doctrine. Tell me, he says, verse 21, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So we go back to the patriarch of our faith, Abraham, the man of faith, and his two sons. Paul faults the Jewish religious leaders as well as the Galatians who follow them with not listening to and not knowing the law. And then he shows them their error by pointing to the true meaning of the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael by the servant or bondwoman Hagar and Isaac by the free woman, his wife Sarah. One of the sons was born by the flesh and the other is born by the word, by the promise and power of God. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son by the free woman through the promise. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on to demonstrate the meaning of these two sons, one slave by the works of man, the other free by the power of God. This is a theme we're going to hit again and again this morning. We have a constant choice, and the choice is between the power of man and the power of God, between the... The, the, the works of man between the works of God, between taking matters into our own hands and doing as best we can, between casting ourselves on the grace and mercy of God by faith, which appears to be a very foolish thing to the eyes of the world. One by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. One, the flesh, one, the promise. One, the power and the works and the initiative and the intelligence and the might of man. The other, the power and the wisdom of God. 
Now the Apostle Paul goes on to demonstrate the meaning of these two sons. In verse 24, having made reference to the story of Abraham and his two sons, he says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. Now, as I said last week, this issue of allegory is a very, very uh, touchy issue in church history. And last week I went through a number of ways that allegory can be abused. I talked about how there were two schools in the ancient church having to do with allegory. One school which denied that allegory was something that should be used very often at all. Yes, you have to submit to it when Scripture explicitly says this is allegory. Paul explicitly says this is allegory here. So I guess we have to allow that there is a larger spiritual meaning and and let Paul go off on it. But you know, now, please, sometimes I'll quote you, and I'm quoting somebody today, um, but, but don't take offense at this because it's what everybody thinks. You know, the Apostle Paul was the product of a certain rabbinical school, and that rabbinical school was comfortable using Scripture in that way, i.e., allegorically. But that doesn't give us license for using it that way today. And we have to look at the, Paul being the product of his time, the product of the school of Gamaliel, the product of a certain way of handling Scripture. But that certainly doesn't give us justification for using Scripture in that way ourselves, all right? And, and so you have this battle through church history as to whether or not the Apostle Paul is simply teaching us that there is an allegory or whether the Apostle Paul is teaching us to, as somebody else here said to me this last week, uh, what Jonathan Edwards refers to as reading Scripture spiritually, with spiritual eyes, seeing all of its truth and, and not being parsimonious, stingy when we approach the text and limiting ourselves very, very circumspectly only to what would have been obvious to the person writing at the time. Now, I'm sure I've caused questions for some of you saying, well, all right, Paul says it, I believe it, and that's good because many people don't believe what Paul says. You understand that. There are many, many people in the church today who explicitly deny that Paul has authority. Now, at any time, there are different things that are in vogue that are, that are fashionable to deny that Scripture is speaking the truth about. The one today that everybody knows that we don't like Paul on is men and women. You know, we don't like the fact that he teaches the authority of husbands over wives. You know, we don't like the fact that he says that in the church, men should hold the authority over men, that it shouldn't be women. You know, and it's gnarly and it's countercultural. And so that's the place today that we typically attack Paul and say, well, Paul was a misogynist. He was a chauvinist pig. He was a male patriarchalist. He came out of his culture. But don't you see, every time the word culture comes up, it's a weasel word. It's a way for us to think that we're really sort of enlightened and, and, and transcultural. Somebody was telling me this last week that they were sitting in a restaurant or somewhere. I don't remember who it was or, or where it was. Who was it? And they were, listening to, uh, they were listening to people talk about how we shouldn't export our culture. Come on, that's up. Who? David Carell. Yeah, tell us, tell us that. Can you get a mic? You got a mic back there? This is, this is a good one. Where? Where's the mic? Oh, here, David. Thanks. Well, I was just watching a group of students from the university and they were talking about they were talking about our culture and what we're doing in Iraq and what we're doing in other countries and how uh, we 
how horrible it is or how wrong it would be if we were to export our culture to other countries. And it became obvious that what would be horrible to them to export would be the culture that they didn't like. So, for instance, they didn't mention the Bush administration, but I assumed that what they didn't like would be that the Bush administration was in charge of exporting our culture to Iraq. But they would be interested in exporting the things that they liked culturally to other countries, for instance, uh, feminism, uh, abortion rights, and those types of things. And so it was really funny as I watched them talking that they... uh, they talked about our culture in one sense as if, as if it were one thing, but in reality they weren't recognizing that within our culture there is representations of all different kinds of uh, beliefs, including Christians, who would certainly not support many of the things that they would support culturally. So, is that what you wanted me to say? Yeah, thanks. And the reason I'm having David bring that up is that Anytime you hear people, whether believers or unbelievers, talking about the fact that we need to be very careful about culture, and when they apply that to Scripture, we have to realize that we're all blind to our own culture. So these people were explicitly saying that what we, we should not export our culture, but rather we should export our culture, because they were saying that feminism and abortion are good things to promote. Now, come on, that's our culture. We all know that. Yeah, there are a lot of loud people that are against abortion, but our culture has 1.3 million. You can't make the case that our culture is against abortion. We're having 1.3 million a year. I mean, you realize after 20 or 30 years, that means that half of all women of childbearing age have had abortions. You ever thought about that? What does it mean to grow up today in a world where half of women of childbearing age have had abortions. There's no other way you can look at it. You know, some women aren't having 20. You understand it. So this is our culture. Now, when we come to looking at Paul with the issue of the allegorical interpretation of Scripture, we say, well, that's his culture. He grew up having Gamaliel and other Jewish rabbis teaching him to look at Scripture that way, but we're better than that. Remember, every single thing in the New Testament, every didactic teaching, every example, every story, everything that's done in the New Testament is done in a culture. There's not one text in the New Testament that is not enculturated. There's not one place that the Holy Spirit speaks to us that the Holy Spirit has not first spoken to the culture of the ancient world. So if you begin to say what parts of Scripture are not really for us, there's no end to it. Because every single word of the New Testament was contextualized. And all this is, is again, unbelief. So if we don't want to look at Paul's handling of this story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac as being a faithful representation of how a man of God will approach the meaning of another text of Scripture, and we say it was just Paul's culture, we have to be very careful because remember, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, I don't mean to say that every text of Scripture we should be looking for the larger meaning beyond the historical meaning at the time. I don't mean that we can just rip Scripture apart and come up with cosmic, mystical, kind of ephemeral, kind of like uh, cloudy, kind of vapory, kind of like, you know, uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network kind of stuff, you know? 
where everything is like disconnected from reality and it's, you know, gold paint and, and big hair and has no connection to my life. Now, you might say, well, that's because your wife doesn't have big hair. Well, even if my wife was a Southern Baptist with big hair, it would still have no connection with my life. You know, I look at it and I think, this is just like professional wrestling. You know, I have no idea what it has to do with. It has no connection to my life. All right? So, no, I'm not arguing that Scripture should be manipulated such that it makes all of us feel better in being normal American materialists which is the summary of Trinity Broadcasting Network. Pity the Africans who gobble that stuff up and will never have the money that we have. It's so perverse. All right? No. There is a plain meaning of the text. Always we start with the plain meaning of the text in the culture at the time, and then we open it up to that meaning and that application to our time. We don't just... You know, cut the strings and let the balloon rise in the hot air. All right? And that is what Origen did. That's what he did with the account in Genesis. That's what he did with the account of Jesus being tempted. Origen said, well, this isn't literally Jesus literally being tempted by Satan. I mean, obviously, there's a larger spiritual meaning. No. If the Bible says that Satan came to him and tempted him, we don't just cut ourselves off from the historical truth. All right? Now, we go back to the actual allegory. And here it is. The Apostle Paul says that Genesis is speaking allegorically when it teaches us about the nature of the church. All right? Here's what, um, here's what he's saying. Hagar is a type of Mount Sinai where Moses later received the old law, and so of the Jerusalem of his own day, the site of the Jewish temple and the center of the Jewish people and religion, Sarah is a type of the heavenly Jerusalem of the Christian church. Now, this is the center of his application of this story. All right? The center of it is that Hagar is pointing to the old Jerusalem of the law and of the slave woman. The church being under the law and not being free. And that Sarah is pointing forward to the new Jerusalem of the Christian church where the free gospel of grace and not the law is preached. Now, as I said earlier, you would not think of the Abram and Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac story as an allegory, would you? But Paul says it is. And so, this is an allegory, and it has something to teach us. In verse 24, Paul says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, I said last week that this is extremely repulsive to Jews. No Jew thought well of Hagar. No Jew thought well of Ishmael. You might feel a certain pity, but you certainly did not want to be lumped in with them. Why? Because they were castoffs. 
they were removed from the house of faith. Alright? And so here the Apostle Paul is saying that the temple, that the synagogue, that the Jewish faith has explicitly denied the true faith. And that it is Ishmael. That it is Ishmael's slave mother, bondwoman, Hagar. And that it is not of God. That it is cast off. And a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out, again, this is a very, very obnoxious thing to us because we live in the post-Holocaust world. We do not want to have anything negative said about Jews. All right? And so I'm stopping now and allowing you to relish the moment. Now, of course, that's the one thing you won't do. You don't relish something that's obnoxious. But are we not to view Scripture as a honeycomb that's sweet to our taste? Now, how on earth could it ever be sweet to our taste that the Jews in the synagogue and in the temple are the children of a slave woman? How could that be good tasting to us. How could it be called honey? Well, you understand that if you refuse to embrace the analogy, if you refuse to relish Paul's statements, if you refuse to open yourself up, you know, like, you know, like the surgeon who's going to do open heart surgery and he first starts by breaking the ribs. If, you're, if you've got like, you know, a Kevlar vest on, and you don't let him break the ribs, he won't be able to get in and do the work, right? And if he doesn't do the work, then you will not find Scripture profitable and you will not profit from it. You will not go from this place changed. And so you have to see that God was pleased to reject his own people. Okay? Now, I don't think I've said it until now, but can I point out to you that in the New Testament... The Holy Spirit refers to those places which have rejected the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, as what? Synagogues of Satan. And you go, yeah, but that was then. Oh, here we go again, the cultural thing, right? You know, now we're so much better than them. You know, they were stupid. They didn't know that the Holocaust was going to come. And had they known, they would never have used such intemperate language, right? Is, is that what you're thinking? But in our day and time, I mean, you know, the Apostle Paul wasn't perfect, and don't deny his agency in writing, but do you know, in the New Testament, it does refer to those places which deny the precious blood of Jesus Christ in synagogues of Satan. Alright? You say, okay, okay, we get it. Would you move on? Right? Would you move on? Okay. So you want to forget about the whole Jewish thing. You want to forget the fact that the Holy Spirit says that these are synagogues of Satan because they deny the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to forget about the fact that Paul says that they're children of Hagar, the bondwoman. You want to forget about the fact that, the, that, 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 that those children who are born of the slave woman are themselves slaves. You want to forget any racial connection, right? Because we live in a post-Holocaust world. All right, then I move forward and I say, all right, let's go to the Reformation. What did our fathers say about Rome? What did they say about Rome? Now, when I say Rome, I don't mean the city. I mean Rome. All right. The Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church. What did they say about the Roman Catholic Church? 
Let me ask you this. What did the Roman Catholic Church say about them? There was great reciprocity in their affections. <laughs> the Roman Catholic Church said in the documents of the Council of Trent, what? It says, God damn the Protestants. It anathematizes them. Now, anathematize means God damn them. I mean, is that an accurate paraphrase? This is my resident Roman Catholic scholar. Um, is that fair? I think it's fair. He's writing a book on it, so... All right. They anathematize Protestants. Why? Well, go back to Galatians and look at the conflict in the church in Galatia. What do you see? You see unbelievable hostility on the part of the Apostle Paul toward a certain group in the church. You can't read Galatians without seeing this. And what is he hostile against? He's hostile against all those who look at the works of the flesh as a way of gaining entrance to heaven. That's the essence of the book of Galatians. He says at the beginning of the book of Galatians, God damn them, God damn them, I say it again, God damn them. He says, now let them be anathema, let them be accursed. That's what God damn means. You're so used to hearing it as an expletive that you don't realize that when somebody says, God damn it, they're saying, go to hell. All right. That's what Apostle Paul is saying about those who teach that we get into heaven by works. All the reformers said that that's always what the Roman Catholic Church has taught. All right? Actually, that's not true. They didn't say that that was always what the Roman Catholic Church had taught. They said that that was overwhelmingly what the Roman Catholic Church taught. All right? And so they said about the Roman Catholic Church, what? What did they call the Roman Catholic Church? They called her the what? The Antichrist and the Whore of Babylon. Now, if you've ever read Revelation, if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, and you know the role that Babylon has in Scripture, you know that's not a compliment. All right? So here you have the Holy Spirit saying that those who reject the blood of Christ, even though they're the people of God, even though they're Jews, are synagogues of Satan. Then you have the Apostle Paul saying anybody that says you have to go into that synagogue, into that temple, and that you have to circumcise yourself in order to be saved, God damn them. And then you come forward and you have Paul associating them with what? Hagar and Ishmael. All right. And then you come forward to the Reformation and you have them saying that Rome is again doing the same thing over. It is telling you that you must be good enough to be saved. That you must observe the law and that if you don't observe the law and you can't come to this table dressed in your righteousness, there is no hope for you. And they say, God damn them for saying that. In fact, they go beyond that. Let me read to you what both Calvin and Luther say. Now, if you knew me, you would know that I'm going to actually read you their words, right? Okay, here it is. They therefore, and this is Martin Luther, they therefore that teach and set forth either the traditions of men or the law of God is necessary to obtain righteousness before God. Do nothing else but give birth to bondservants. Notwithstanding, such teachers are counted the best men. They obtain the favor of the world. They are the most fruitful mothers, for they have an infinite number of disciples. For man's reason understands not what faith and true godliness is. And therefore it neglects and it despises it and is naturally addicted to what? Superstition and hypocrisy. That is to say, to the righteousness of works. 
Now, because this righteousness shines and flourishes everywhere, therefore it's a mighty empress of the whole world. They, therefore, which teach the righteousness of works by the law, beget many children which outwardly seem to be free and have a glorious show of excellent virtues, but in conscience they're servants and bond slaves of sin. Therefore, they are to be cast out of the house and condemned. On the other hand, Sarah, the free woman, that is to say the true church, seems to be barren. For the gospel, which is the word of the cross, which the church preaches, shines not so brightly as the doctrine of the law and works. And therefore, she does not have many disciples cling to her. Moreover, she bears this title that she, and now he's saying, okay, what does Rome accuse us of doing now as we preach the gospel and the Reformation and see the rebirth of the church? He says, this is what she says about us. She says that we forbid good works that we make men secure, idle, and negligent, that we raise up heresies and seditions, and that we are the cause of all mischief. And therefore, she seems to bring no success or prosperity, the true church, but that all things seem to be full of barrenness, desolation, and desperation. Therefore, the wicked are certainly persuaded that the church with her doctrine can't long endure. The Jews assured themselves that the church, which was planted by the apostles, would be overthrown. And they called it the odious name of a sect. And for thus they spoke of Paul in Acts 28:22, As concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And then he goes on and he says this. He, therefore, that will preach Christ truly and confess him to be our righteousness, not our works, must be content to hear that he is a pernicious fellow. And that's not a kind compliment. And that he troubles all things. They said of the, the Jews said of Paul and Silas that they were the troublers of the world. And that they're contrary to the decrees of Caesar in Acts 17. And in Acts 14, they say, We have found this pestilent fellow stirring up sedition among all the Jews throughout the whole world and the author of the sect of the Nazarenes. In like manner also the Gentiles complain in Acts 16, these men trouble our city. And so at this day, they accuse Luther to be a troubler of the papacy and of the Roman Empire. If I would keep silence, then all things should be in peace, which the strong man possesses. He make reference to the strong man being the devil, and he possesses. And he says, if I would just shut up, everything would be at peace, they say. This is Luther talking. And then he says, but by this means, the gospel of Christ would be blemished and wiped out. If I speak, he says, the Pope is troubled and overthrown. Either we must lose the Pope, an earthy and mortal man, or else we must lose Christ who is eternal. And with him we must lose eternal life. Now listen to this. He ends by saying this. He says, let the Pope perish then, which is earthly and mortal, rather than the heavenly and eternal Jesus Christ. Let the Pope perish then. Now, you might say Martin Luther was an excitable man. And there isn't really as much at stake. We have come to see over the centuries that the Roman Catholic Church has much good in it. There are many Christians. All right, Calvin was really not an excitable man. Calvin was a lawyer. Calvin was calm. But listen to Calvin on this same text. Calvin says, let's think well of the thing that Paul tells us here. Let's meditate on it. For Paul likens the church to a widow which is all alone in her house and has neither food nor help. 
The world forsakes her. No man makes account of her. She is as good as half dead and buried already. Nevertheless, God says that she shall be set float again and that she shall have more children than she that is married and is in credit and reputation. This lesson must we, I say, remember carefully nowadays when we see the poor church so trodden underfoot and the enemies of her in such pride and madness that they set up their crests, their banners, their flags and triumph over us as though we were no better than dust and smoke. When we see such things, let us wait patiently till God gathers together those whom he has chosen. And let us content us that he claims us for his children. Though the world hates us and shakes us off, you see then that we must not bring eyes full of vanity to see which is the church, as they do which will have nothing but pomp and great outward shows. But on the opposite, let us consider that God will so afflict his poor church as there shall not appear any beauty or shape in her to the worldly, but rather utter desolation. Yes, every man will rise against her. But no matter how she fares, let it content us that God gathers us to him as his children. Yes, and let us remember that when we are called by the pure doctrine of the gospel, we are made fellows with all the fathers whom God chose under the law, with all the holy kings and patriarchs, with all the prophets and martyrs, and with all the faithful ones that have been since able to this day, which shall be to the world's end. No doubt but the papists will brag enough of their multitude. Yes, but we see that the prophet laughs at them to scorn. And why? We must always understand which are the true children. For what else are all the churches of the papists than brothel houses of Satan? Oh. Oh. All things are infected. Nothing is there but filthiness. God's service is there utterly marred And to be short, there is no soundness in all of them. The papists, therefore, for all that they ever can pretend to make themselves God's church, are but misbegotten bastards. As they are tied to the brothel house with their mother, that synagogue of hell. Now, brothers and sisters, you might say, well, this is in a commentary and it's meant to be read only by pastors. No, I'm actually reading from a sermon that Calvin preached. This is what he said publicly. You see then how the case stands, and it's not I that says it, but the prophet Isaiah that speaks so, and St. Paul, who is a faithful expounder of God's meaning, confirms the matter. Therefore, let us learn to join with the true children of God that have the infallible record of the Holy Ghost and not follow the greater throng, but let these wretches go, which cast themselves willfully into Satan's snares and wander like brute beasts without any discretion." Now, let me talk to you about culture. Your culture is one that causes you to, above all, want to get along with people and to be, appear to be reasonable. You are in a culture of diversity, of pluralism, of tolerance. And it's not just the university. It's in your workplace. It's everything that you do. And as Christians, we are to love the lost. But we are not to love the synagogue of Satan that rises herself up and takes the posture of being the only path of salvation and refers to us as those who teach a false gospel. When it comes to a contest between those who place their faith in the lighting of candles and the doing of pilgrimages and the following of the Ten Commandments and all these laws that the Apostle Paul is saying do not lead to salvation. 
Not homeschooling, not candles, not crawling up the steps of the cathedral in La Ciudad de Mexico. All right? You understand? None of it. It does not lead to salvation. What leads to salvation is when the law comes into your heart such that it leads you to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Any righteousness which competes with the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your heart is a bastard child and it will lead you to hell. Any church that teaches that there is a righteousness that must come alongside the righteousness of Jesus Christ is a church that is producing bastard children. Do you understand this? This is truth. You cannot get truth that is that is eternally important across by using uh, mollycoddling, kind of little, kind of like tickling, feathery kind of words and concepts. All right? You have to go back to a time when the Holy Spirit spoke through men who used manly language and were able to polarize churches so that they cast out the servant girl. They cast out her child. And they said, we will not have any of that. Martin Luther wrote, said, here I stand, God help me. And nothing short of that will protect your soul. If you get caught in your sin and you think to myself, oh my God, we have the Lord's Supper this Sunday and I'm so impure and I don't have righteousness to come to that table. It is Martin Luther, it is the Apostle Paul, it is the Holy Spirit, it is John Calvin, it is John Knox, it is every single one of them that stands in front of you and says, forget your righteousness. You have none. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you say, oh, but the Roman Catholic Church tells me that I have to come also with my own righteousness. I've got to circumcise myself. I have to avoid mortal sins and, and, and even venial sins. I have to go to Mass at least once a week. I have to say confession. You know how, much, how little they have it down to now? Auricular confession? They have it down to once a year. You know? Once a year I have to go to confession. You know? What is it? It is... Hagar, it is Ishmael, it is Rome, it is all the usurpers who set themselves up against the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you have to have a passion against it. You have to have a passion also against the liberal churches that have their own little righteousness. Puny, safety belts and booster seats and, and not loitering and not smoking in bars and, and all the little righteousness that the liberals, you know, who are sending all their people to Katrina and look at our righteousness. Aren't we an enlightened and, and tolerant and helpful people? And it's the same thing. It's the Roman Catholic Church all over again. It's moralism. It has nothing to do with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which was a righteousness that said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Why a sword? Because Jesus divided the people of God right down the middle between those who were humble and broken and meek and children and, and who went to God with hearts that were broken and said, only in the blood of Christ do I hope. And those who said, well, I appreciate Jesus. He was a great moral leader. You know, you know, he was a great moral leader and he has, he has a great deal to help us. But you know, I can't, I can't just trust Jesus, you know, because look at me, I have to do something. What is that? That's pride. That's pride. What do you have to do? Huh? Huh? You know, would it be enough not to look at internet pornography for seven days before communion? Three? 
You know, three months? You know, what do you have to do? Did Jesus die for internet pornography? Did He die for your addiction to strange flesh? Did He die for your violating of your marriage bed? Or didn't He? How much purity do you have to have in your marriage bed before you can come to Jesus Christ? There are two women and two children. One is a slave woman with a son who will never, ever, ever be in the kingdom of God. And that, that woman looks fertile, and she does have a child, and Abraham thinks his hope is there, right? And to the world, all through history, that church appears to be fertile. She appears to be filled with children, have all the pomp and circumstance of the world. You go into her temples, and they're all gold. <laughs> you know? They all have guilt. Now, not G-U-I-L-T. They have that too, but G-I-L-T. You know, I went into St. Paul's Cathedral in London with my family. Oh, it looks like it's a glorious work. And God is a seven-syllable word in those churches. God! And it feels good. You know? It feels like this is the most magnificent structure in all of London, which is a town of magnificent structures. This must be something. <laughs> you know? And what is it? It's Hagar. It's Ishmael. It's a bastard child because it has its own righteousness. Okay? That's what it is. It's a synagogue of Satan. It's not Jews. We're not whooping up on Jews. We're whooping up on all those who refuse to cast themselves on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's your choice. Your choice is whether or not you do what the songs that we sang earlier say, whether you go to Jesus or whether you go to yourself. Because really, to go to the Roman Catholic Church and to go to circumcision and to go to the moralism of the liberal churches is to go to yourself. It feels good. It appears to the world to be the path to heaven. If you go to yourself, if you go to your pride, you go to your own pomp and circumstance, you go to St. Paul's. Now, I'm speaking in generalities, and if you don't like generalities, I'm sorry, but you have to do it, all right? You go to St. Paul's, you are hopeless. You're a bastard child. You have a slave woman for your mother, and there is no hope for you eternally. If you go to Buddhism... If you go to Hinduism, to Confucianism, if you go to Islam, if you go anywhere but to the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you because it's all the same. It's the works of man. It's man reaching to God. But if you come to, and if the elders would come forward, please, if you come to what? If you come to the body of Christ, if you come to the blood of Christ, all right? If you come bringing nothing in your hands, all right? If you absolutely cast yourself at the mercy of God, saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, then heaven is your inheritance. You are called a son of God. Woman, man, you're a son of God. You're adopted. He is your father. He is your daddy. Now, here is the choice in front of you. Some people teach this is a converting ordinance. I say, yes, it is. This is the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the body of Jesus Christ. Is this your faith? Is this your faith? 
What is your faith? Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ on campus? Are you ashamed of it in your living room? Are you ashamed of it at the workplace? Or do you cast yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ? Yes, the world will look at you and say, she's a sterile woman. She has no hope. Her husband has abandoned her. She's foolish. She's limited. She's weak. There are not many there. Not many of you are wise in the world's eyes. But God says, I am well pleased in his son and in all those who cling to his son. Now, what more do you want than the pleasure of God? Brothers and sisters, cast yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ.